you know Larry Moore, you've met the guy, you think he's, he's, he's all right. He's amazing. He's a great leader, a uh, great blessing to the Regina Apostolic Church. Uh, he's just been on uh, lead pastor there for well, about a year now, roughly, I'm, I'm saying. I think I've got that right. And he is an awesome leader. And we're really excited that he's going to come and help us with the series that we're in, which is called Four, F-O-R. And we're talking about how uh, the different realities about how God is for us and we are for God and, and God has made us a people for others, a people for the world. Well, Daisy told us, told a story in secret last week that I'm going to tell a little more openly today. Uh, she was telling, uh, she told this story, but I'll just tell you my side of the things. It won't make me look any better, but um, my wife and I were having trouble trying to line up a Valentine's date night uh, with our kids. Sometimes it's pretty challenging to get out together, and it has been for a long time. And so we did get somebody who would be available to take care of our kids one night, but they couldn't come till late. In fact, they couldn't come until 9.30 in the evening. And so, but we said, we'll take it. Any, any parents understand? We'll take it. <laughs> any chance you can get out, it's, you know, we'll take it. So we'll take it. Come at 9.30, we'll go out on a late date night, and that'll be our Valentine's together. Well, as it happened, it ended up being sort of a, a rough day for me. I had uh, things come up, extra jobs I was doing that I found very frustrating, and I was very stressed, and I was in a bad mood. Anyone have that ex- happen to you? You're getting ready for this great moment together with your spouse, and you just have that happen? That, anyone? Yeah, you testify. And it happens to me more often than not, and I always think, the enemy doesn't want us to get together and be friends. Or else it's just me. But um, anyhow, so I was in a bit of a mood, and, and, uh, and it took us a little longer to get out the door. Even at 9.30, we still weren't quite ready, and so we got out a little later. And then it was sort of like, and we hadn't even planned. I hadn't planned. That's my job. I hadn't planned. It was one of those moments where you say, where do you want to go? Except for it was like, where do you want to get takeout? Because it was getting so late. And so Marnie wanted to go one place and get food. At, but I, I wanted to get a pizza. So we went to her place, picked up some food, and then we drove to Red Swan Pizza. And uh, I said, well, we'll just park here. You park here. I'll, I'll go inside. I'll order the pizza. I'll come out and I'll sit with you. And we'll just talk for 20 minutes while they make the pizza. And uh, okay. So I went inside. And I, I go in up to the counter to order. And as I'm going up, there's five guys, they're all from India, and they're sitting at the counter eating their pizza. And I say, hey, how's it going? I'm, you know, just being friendly, and they're like, great, it's going great, how are you? Blah, 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 we start chatting, and, and, uh, and sort of as I'm ordering my pizza, we start just engaging more and more, and then they're like, come, sit with us, have pizza with us. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I think they're all Hindus, so it was vegetarian pizza. I was like, ah, sure, I'm not, you know, it's not what I usually order, but yeah, yeah. That's a, and then I had just this great conversation. Where are you from? And tell us about the city you came from. And tell us what you're coming to Canada. And, and it was just awesome, me and these five Hindu guys just having this great time together. And um, time went by quickly. And then the lady at the counter said, hey, your pizza's done. And I was like, 20 minutes already? And that's when I remembered. I wasn't there alone. Well, I was. Anyhow, so I went and paid for my pizza, and I walked out sheepishly into the parking lot and got into the vehicle and said, ah, yeah, sorry about that. I know we were going to, I was going to sit out here and talk with you, but I ended up 
Of course, I started explaining what happened inside, but she was parked right at the window, and could, she watched the whole thing in real time. <laughs> and um, so anyhow, you know, you're always trying to find a way to dig yourself out as a whole, as a, as a husband, when you do stuff like this. And so I, and, and I have the extra benefit or disadvantage of trying to spiritualize everything because I'm a pastor. And so I, this is what I said. I said, well, you know, I had a hard day, and I think God just knew I needed five Hindu guys to cheer me up. <laughs> Has anyone else tried that line to get you out of It's not very effective, I found. Anyhow, so there I was. It was really awkward. I felt our date was not going well, and I said, it's late. What do you want to do now? Like, I thought, she probably doesn't want to do anything with me after this. And she said, how about we go home and put some furniture together? Now, that's not what I was hoping for that night, but at that point, I was willing to do anything she would suggest that included me doing something with hers. So that's how our date ended that night, is assembling furniture into the wee hours of the morning. So I'm telling you this story to encourage you, because you might have had a bad date, and now you'll feel better, because you think, wow, I'm way more with it than Steve is. Some of you young guys are saying, boy, does that guy have any game at all? But I actually, I, I'm, I want to introduce you to something else. Even though I say and do boneheaded, insensitive, and downright selfish things, I have been treated by Marnie better than I deserve. And it's not because she's perfect or because she's a saint, so don't phone the Pope and try to suggest her. But it is because that she is for me. Now, the day we got married, she said she was for me in the vows that she recited. I said similar ones to her. But then she's demonstrated the truth of it through the last 24 years. It wasn't just a message she was conveying. It was backed up by a demonstration of her day-in and day-out relationship with me. She's treated me better than I than I've earned or that I deserve. And I hope that you experience, it's not just this is an exclusive thing to marriage, but I hope that you've experienced people that are for you in your life. I mean, people who stick by you when you fail. People who uh, don't give up on you when you mess up or they, they don't run away when they get to know the real you. People that are for you. But today I want to tell you some good news. Even if there are few who are for you, Or maybe right now you can't even think of anyone who is for you. Maybe that's where you're at today. I want to say confidently that God himself is for you. As much as Marnie being for me for the last 24 years, because of my behavior sometimes, is surprising. It's even more surprising that God is for us. It's even more surprising You know, the Bible records the historic treachery of humanity against God. After God created people and set them up for the best possible life, they rejected his leadership, disobeyed his commands, stopped trusting his character, and rebelliously went on their own way without a shred of gratitude for the one who gave them life. Instead of doing the good and noble things they were designed for, they all turned to doing whatever was right in their own eyes. And as a result, there was an explosion of evil in the world. Wherever humans went, selfishness and sin came with them. 
And every human system conceived to deal with human wickedness from the outside has failed. And it becomes corrupted because the source of the sin is on the inside. The sin nature in our hearts we've inherited from our ancestors is alive and well in our world today. And the Bible describes the consequences of our sin. Isaiah 59.1 says what our sins have done to us. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So our iniquities, have, our sin has separated us from God. And then Romans chapter 6, the whole chapter says it again and again. But every, all through it, it just talks about how we've become enslaved to sin. So it's not just sin as actions we do. Sin is a power at work within our lives. That we're born into a slavery to sin, to its power. And then John 3, 16 to 18. I find this fascinating because I, I feel like you almost have to read it backwards to get the progression. Um, it starts so good, and you might, but you might underestimate the significance of the goodness of it because you don't sometimes read the next few verses to realize the badness, the goodness was coming to correct. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So the human condition, we're separated from God we're ensla- we're ens- because of our sin, we're enslaved to sin, but we're we stand condemned. We stand condemned. Our sin puts us in that position. So that's the bad news. Whoever doesn't believe in him stands condemned already and will perish, separated from God. But the good news is Jesus wasn't sent to condemn the world, but to save it. And God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to deal with our sin problem and save us from its terrible outcomes Slavery to sin now in this life and separation from God for eternity when we die. He came to save us from those things. But our sinful actions and sinful conditions are deadly serious to God. He stands willing to forgive the guilt of our sin and to free us from the power that sin has over us. And he was so willing to do that, he took our punishment on himself. Isaiah 53, 4-12 tells us what our sins did to Jesus. I'll just read smatterings of it. It just keeps repeating the same truth in different ways. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of his people, he was punished. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, yet it was God's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. 
My righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. When I say God is for us, well, that's the message. But the, the demonstration of that is Jesus willing to suffer and die to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross. That's why I say it's surprising good news. It's surprising good news because it's completely and utterly undeserved. We don't deserve forgiveness for our sin. We don't deserve for him to heal our hearts. We don't deserve for him to give us his love or to make us his part of his family, to give us back what our ancestors lost through their disobedience, to give us eternal life forever. We don't deserve any of those things. Yet, he stands ready to give it. And that's being for somebody. When someone completely and utterly deserves no good response, and you love them, not just in a tiny way, but you lavish love upon them in an incredible way. This message that God stood ready to forgive and and lead all uh, who come to him in repentance and humility into a great, incredible future with him, this was powerful stuff for Jesus' early followers. In fact, it empowered them to face all sort of suffering and setbacks in their lives by the fact that God was for them. And today, this powerful truth still has the ability to take many of the limits off how we live our lives. Think about um, the things that Jesus taught his followers to do that sound impossible. Sound impossible for for us to really carry out. I mean, then the kind of things you go, whoa, I'm going to try that. And then you go, whoa, that's super hard. Jesus taught his followers to love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who use you. And what Daisy shared last week, When you give a banquet, invite those who cannot repay you. Those are all like incredible ideals. And yet, what we find is that when we try to love in these ways, that we get impatient and and we don't want to. And and we get tired and there's lots of things. And he, but there's power in this reality that he's for us. There's power in coming back to that, that truth again and again and again. 2 Corinthians 5 and 15 and 16, these are sort of key verses for this series. Just share a little bit of it. It shares this progression. Verse 15 says, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So this is pretty awesome. You can have the guilt of sin washed, the condemnation that comes from unbelief reversed. You can be freed from the slavery of living for yourself so we can start living for God, who is the one who's for us, right? But what does God want us to do for him? If I'm living for God, what does that mean? What does that look like? And right away in these verses, it jumps into starting to define that for us. It said, all this is from God, verse 18, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Ministry is a word that basically means service, right? To serve, to do, to act. It's an active thing. The ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Message, it's words, right? It's what we say. So we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So God's given us the ministry of reconciliation, which is the things that we do. It's our service. And the message of reconciliation, it's the words that we say. It's the message that we have for the world. Message and ministry. Words and action. I've been, so far I'm talking about the message, the truth, that here's what Jesus has done for us, that God is for us, and that's demonstrated in the fact that Christ died for us. But how do we walk out the ministry? What does it look like uh, when we carry this message, but also this ministry into the world? Let me read you the intro to the book of Acts. Two verses. Written by Luke. Luke wrote two books. He wrote the book of Luke, which is one of the stories about Jesus' life, and he wrote the book of Acts, which is after Jesus' death, what did his followers, what did they do? And here's the intro. He says, in my former book, the book of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he's chosen. And the, the book of, if the book of Luke was about what Jesus began to do and teach, then the book of Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. And he's doing it through his followers. He's doing it through us. We've been given his ministry, the do. And we've been given his message, the teach. And we're the ones continuing his work in the world. We are the sequel. Well, maybe not the sequel. We are the continuation. Uh, J.D. Greer, I've been reading one of his books. He has another book. It's just called Jesus Continued. That's what the church is. We're Jesus Continued. We're his body in the world. That's what he said. Carrying out his, his mission in the world. Every year we come to, uh, we try to help each one of us to walk out a practical way to minister in the world together. And we, take, we, st- we, we share four steps. I wonder if you know them. Okay? They're, they're, we say they're the four steps of prayer evangelism. Okay? Okay, I'll, just, I'll give you a hint. Start with blessing. You get an extra gold star. Okay? Start with blessing and then spend, spend time. Daisy shared about that last week. And then meet needs. Oh, you guys are really you're coming on strong now. And share, the answer is always this in Sunday school. Jesus, share Jesus. <laughs> okay, let's do that again, because clearly we're just a little rusty. Because we talk about this every year. We've done it for about three, four years in a row. Start with blessing, spend time, meet needs, share Jesus. You say, just this, this is a progression. You might actually do all four of these things in one conversation with a person. Or one interaction with the person. It might all happen in 15 minutes. Or this might take years of walking with somebody in relationship. We encourage you to prayer walk your neighborhood. Maybe you don't know your neighbors. Maybe you walk around and just pray and bless that every home you go through. Lord, I bless that family. I bless that family. Give me an opportunity to meet them so I can bless them by name. 
Right? Start with blessing. It'll change your heart. It'll change the spiritual atmosphere around people. It'll prepare you for the, the steps to come when you have an opportunity to spend time with them. And when you spend time with them, it'll give you the opportunity to find out what their needs are so that you can meet them, whether it's through supernatural means, praying and seeing God doing something in their lives, or through just very natural means, just being generous with your time or your money or, uh, you know, your help. So when, when you meet needs, when you start with blessing, you spend time, you meet needs, it gives you a platform and an opportunity to share Jesus. Because all those things you did before are the demonstration. They're the ministry of reconciliation. They're the demonstration that matches the message. This is what I've learned in my own life. If my activities don't last, if my identity doesn't match. So it's not just a list of to-dos, those four things. It's not just a list of to-dos. I love the soundtrack I'm preaching to right now. It's not just a list of to-dos. A to-do list doesn't, is rarely successful unless you have the to-be understanding that undergirds it. Especially things that are very difficult. Especially things that I mean giving of yourself, of laying down your own life in imitation of Jesus. If you don't see yourself as Jesus' ambassador in your sphere of influence, and sphere of influence, I mean like your neighborhood, your sports team, your school classroom, your workplace, your extended family, the people that you know and who know you. If you don't see yourself as Jesus' ambassador in your spheres of influence, it's hard to walk through a step of to-dos. You have to see that you are a sent person. God is ascending God. Jesus is the one who came in response to that sending initiative, that loving initiative. And now he calls us to initiate in relationship. For us to lay our lives down for others like he did for us. It's the demonstration that matches the message. And it's demonstrating two things. One, uh, one it's, a, it's, it's showing who Jesus was and is. And the other thing is it's showing what the kingdom, when Jesus rules and reigns, will be like when it comes in all of its glory. I can't get enough of this book. It's called... Gaining by Losing by J.D. Greer. Um, I'm going to read you a good portion of this because it's amazing. It's amazing. He says, On the Invisible Man television show, when someone wants to make him visible, they would pour paint on him. Then you could see his shape and track his movements. I suggest that the local church is the paint that makes the invisible Christ visible to our community. The local church is the paint that makes the invisible Christ visible to our community in its fellowship, its holiness of life, its multicultural diversity, its selfless acts of love, its forgiveness and boldness. In all these things, it reveals the contours of the eternal heavenly Christ that dwells within them. When the local churches equip their people to embody the gospel in the streets, they make the movements of an otherwise invisible Christ visible to their community. So when we meet needs, by the way, this is week three of this series, so I'm supposed to be talking about meeting needs. When we meet needs, 
in tangible ways in the community, we're, we're, we're starting to show what Jesus is really like. So this pastor, he was invited to speak at the Martin Luther King Jr. rally in his, in his city. He said, the county manager said, J.D., do you know why you were asked to speak today? No, sir, I said. It's because of how your church has blessed our city. Another city official shared with me later that afternoon, it seems that everywhere in our city we find a need, we also find people from your church meeting that need. And we couldn't think of anyone better to embody the spirit of brotherly love we wanted to honor this day than you all at your church. He goes on to say, For 18 of my 20 minutes in giving his speech, I explained how the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ transforms self-absorbed people into those who love and pour themselves out for others. We love because we've been first loved. When I was finished, there was a, he talks about the response of the people. We are all still learning what it means to serve our community. I think at Hillcrest we are too. We've been on a learning growth path with this, but we're still learning how to serve our community. But as I stood on the stage that day, an idea that had been growing inside of me crystallized. The church is God's demonstration community. Our works don't replace the verbal preaching of the gospel, but in them we demonstrate tangibly the love and grace that we proclaim with our mouths. Effective gospel preaching is explaining with our words what we demonstrate with our lives. In our service, we make visible the invisible Christ. God has called us to bring joy to our city the way Philip brought joy to Samaria, by preaching the gospel of peace to the city and demonstrating its power to heal and bless through acts of extravagant generosity. Let me be clear. The church's primary objective is to preach the gospel, not to beautify the city, care for the poor, or renovate the ghettos. That's because the gospel testifies to what God has done to save the world, not what we can do to patch it up. The gospel is an announcement about Christ's finished work. The Christian gospel is an announcement about the victory Christ has accomplished. Thus, our ministry begins with and focuses on testifying to what Christ has done. Any service to our community that does not make that message clear disservices them. Acts of kindness, apart from or acts of kindness without the gospel, only make more people comfortable on their way to separation from God. Maybe you've heard the old adage attributed to Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. It's quaint and tweetable, but very wrong. You cannot preach the gospel without words. The gospel is an explanation about an act that occurred in history once and for all. We testify through words that Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves by living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died in our place so that others can believe that message and trust in it. Saying, preach the gospel if necessary, use words, is like me saying, tell me your phone number. If necessary, use digits. Apart from digits, there's no phone number. And apart from words, there's no gospel. Whenever the gospel of words is preached in the New Testament, however, its messengers substantiated those words with signs. Jesus' miracles were not just cool magic tricks he did to convince listeners he had crazy power. He never said, now for my next trick, I'll make Peter disappear. 
Or, write down a number between one and a billion and I'll guess it correctly on the first try. Rather, he did things that demonstrated salvation. He healed bodies to show that the gospel can restore what sin has destroyed. He multiplied bread to show that those who feast on him will never be hungry. He walked on water to show that God reigns over chaos and walks on top of judgment for us. He raised the dead to show that he makes all things new. Tim Keller says, Jesus' miracles did not merely show off the naked fact of Jesus' power. They revealed the redemptive purpose of his power. As people saw Jesus' signs, they understood his message, and they believed it. In Acts, we see the apostles signifying the gospel through miraculous works like healing the sick and casting out demons. But we also see the church in Acts signifying the gospel. That's demonstration. In less miraculous ways, as when Tabitha made coats for her community. When Stephen cared for widows, signifying the gospel to antagonistic Jewish priests, and it won their hearts. The unity between races in the church, Paul said, demonstrated to the world the reality of the power of God. In his first epistle, Paul, Peter told the church that they were to live with such love and grace that the government, their employers, and their spouses would be compelled to ask why. In doing so, he said, they would be a sign for the coming age. The church was to be the one place in a broken and fractured world where the seeds of renewal and hope flourished. Encountering the church, it has been said, should be like walking through a city block that's been leveled by an earthquake and finding a flower sprouting up through the, through the rubble. The beautiful flower shows you there is hope in the chaos, life pressing up through death. So a church's demonstration of the coming reign of God might look like renovating schools, helping alcoholics, healing marriages, providing job training, offering medical care, or blessing teachers. Which signs are most effective in your community will be based on your context. In cities where spiritism was common, the apostles cast out demons. Where cruelty and sorrow overshadowed the city, the apostles lived with generosity and joy. In a place where the poor were oppressed, they stuck up for the needy. Where races could not get along, they demonstrated the unity of the gospel. These signs do not replace the preaching of the gospel. They help prove it. Contrary to the popular bumper sticker, which says, perform random acts of kindness, our kindness is to be neither random nor senseless. Ours is intentional and logical. We demonstrate by our actions the kingdom that we declare is coming with our lips. As N.T. Wright says, we sketch out with a pencil what Jesus will one day paint in indelible ink. In saying that our primary focus in all we do is persuading our neighbors to believe the gospel, I do not mean that we serve people only to convert them, as if our acts of love are conditioned on their acceptance of our message. We serve them whether or not they ever show any interest in the gospel, because that's how Jesus serves us. The good we do for them is a good, God-pleasing end in itself. Just as God makes his sun to shine on the evil and the just, the light of our kindness should shine on all indiscriminately. As, I, as I've heard said, we don't serve to convert. We serve because we're converted. But if we, what we believe about the gospel is true, we can never be satisfied to put food in people's bellies or education in their minds when their souls are in jeopardy. I'm glad we can put Tom's shoes on people's feet, but I'm concerned about Tom's soul. Shoes can't fix that, only Jesus can. Here's the last little bit. At the Summit Church, we say people. Not projects are our mission. Our acts of generosity and healing demonstrate to the world that God so loved us that he gave his only son so we could be reconciled to him. 
And Francis Schaeffer once said, the final apologetic Jesus gives is the observable love of Christians one for another. So we preach, the, we preach the word. We preach the message of reconciliation. But then we demonstrate. We demonstrate the kingdom that's to come. If Jesus was king, if sin was eradicated, what would, what would life be like? What would this world look like if that was the reality? We lean into that reality by having our own lives transformed, having our own selfishness, having our own living for ourselves, confronted with the call of God to live for him. And as we live for him more and more, and every time we find in ourselves the discovery of areas where we're still living for ourselves and we repent of that in that area and we surrender, people get a taste of the kingdom. People get a taste of the refreshingness of the kingdom. God changes us. He's meant to change us so we can live radically generous lives and bring that into the world. You know, in the book of Acts, 39 out of 40 miracles happen outside of the church. 39 out of 40 of the miracles in the book of Acts happen outside of the church. So if we don't go out, if we don't engage, are you satisfied with one out of the 40? I, I think one of the things we should yearn for as a church is the other 39 miracles that God wants to do in the world. And I think where those miracles are going to show up the most is where the gospel is being communicated to people who don't know him. These signs will accompany the sharing of the gospel in those contexts. So it's great when we pray for each other and we minister to each other, and we should expect that God will do healing in our midst and he will do uh, um, signs and wonders in our midst because God is a miracle-working God. But if we look at the book of Acts, it seemed that to accomplish the mission, God poured out his spirit in incredible ways in the marketplace, in the, in the spheres where people gather and where people come together. I get excited when, when I pray for somebody uh, outside of the church context. I love praying for people in the church too. But outside the church context, there's something really exciting about it. I prayed for lots of miracles for lots of people. Uh, I haven't seen tons, but I've seen some things happen. But I get sort of excited. I sort of feel like, mm, this is a terrible way to say it. I feel like I'm playing the odds. <laughs> I feel like, God really wants this person to come to know him. And so when I pray things for people who don't know him, I, I expect more in some ways. Or I expect, you know, I don't know what God's going to do and I can't tip his hand or control him. But at the same time, I think, well, God, you love this person. You want them to know who you are. And so I'm on tiptoe here. I'm praying for them. And I don't know what's going to come out of it. I don't know. You know what? I've, even when I'm praying for someone to have a miracle happen and that thing that I pray for doesn't happen, I've never had anyone just sort of come back to me and go, man, I wish you'd never prayed for me. In fact, I think we're finding this more and more. People are open to that 
more than we thought they were. So I want to pray for you. Like, um, I, I, um, in my engagement with, uh, I shared last week about a Muslim man who I had lots of engagement with, but he was really blessed every time I prayed for him. I think it, it, to him it was a demonstration that I did love him. Like that's how he understood it. It was like you, you, you are willing to pray with me. That like he wasn't in agreement with you know he didn't see we didn't have the same worldview or didn't have the same understanding of who God was for sure. Very different. But he understood that to be an act of love. So I'm believing for those. And I want us as a church to yearn for the 39 out of 40. And not just be satisfied with the one. I want us to yearn and lean into those things. I think when... And that's a supernatural, but I think the natural, God uses that in, in incredible ways too. Like just generosity. Radical generosity. I was reading again in JD's book and he said people had been really generous to this guy and, and the guy came back and asked, why are you doing this? And the answer, I love this answer. Why are you so generous? It's because we serve a Savior who gave up everything for us when we didn't care anything about him. Why are you being so generous? Because Jesus has impacted us. Because he's incredibly generous. We've experienced generosity. We've become generous people because we've experienced incredible generosity in our lives. See, the gospel, more J.D. Greer, and then I'll be done reading this book. The gospel creates a culture in which people leave their comfort to demonstrate the beauty and power of the gospel outside the camp. That's a reference to Hebrews 13. And as they do, people you would never expect to step foot in a church begin to ask the reason for the hope and generosity within us. Soon, by God's grace, they, they might be asking, Sir, what must I do to be saved, like the Philippian, Philippian jailer did? Because Jesus is truly beautiful. When he is lifted up, he draws people to himself. Jesus always had crowds of thieves, prostitutes, tax collectors, and down-and-outs gathered around him, even before they had reformed their lives. Sinners far from God will still gather around the Jesus of grace and truth today, and they will throng to our churches to hear more about him as they experience his healing touch through our people. What a statement of faith. I love it. So are you painting the invisible Christ for the homeless, the orphan, the international student, the Muslim cleric, the prisoner, the unwed mother, mother, the at-risk teens? Are you painting his love for the gay and lesbian community in your city? Are we painting the invisible Christ? We do it through meeting needs. We do it through meeting needs. I think one of the big things uh, for us is we just need to pray that God would give us opportunities to meet needs. Like, here's, okay, just about prayer. Pray big and pray small. Pray big and pray small. Sometimes I just pray grand sweeping prayers. Like, Lord, that's my neighbor. This is the name. I pray they come to know you. I am asking for the whole enchilada in one shot, right? But also pray mini prayers, mini prayers, mini prayers. I haven't seen that guy outside of his house for a month. God, I pray for a moment where I can talk with him. I pray for a moment where I can talk, just to shoot the breeze, just to be friendly, just to reestablish that we're friends and neighbors because it's been a long winter. We haven't seen each other. 
God, I pray for that. Or maybe, Lord, I pray for that I'd have, a, uh, that there'd be a need that I could meet. I pray for an opportunity to spend time. Pray for those things that we've been describing. Pray many. Pray large. Pray both. I think. One of the fun things to do is keep track of your mini-asks in, in a journal. Because then you see more answers quickly. Right? When all your asks are like, Lord, save the whole world. Okay, that can only happen once. And it probably won't happen for a while. <laughs> so you're not going to see a lot of answers. But if you go small, just ask, Lord, ask for many things. Lord, help me to remember to pray for my neighbor tomorrow. And then you do. Thank you. Answer. Lord, help me to... Uh, Help me to uh, speak words of blessing over my neighbor. Good. Stuff's happening. It's good. This is working. Lord, help me to have an encounter with my neighbor, to be able to see them, spot them, meet them, talk to them. Good. And you'll be excited about what the way that God is working. This all comes back to the fact that God is for us. God is for us. Now, God is for us. We are for God. That makes us for the world. God is for us. It's so powerful. It's the start of it all. If we rush out to be for the world without that undergirding truth deeply in us that God is for us, we don't go with the same power. We don't go with the same perseverance. We need that reality. I think about in Romans chapter 8 where, you know, they straight up say God is for us, that line. We see these things. The Holy Spirit is helping us in our weakness. God the Father is working for our good. Jesus who died and was raised to life is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And if that wasn't enough, nothing can separate us from his love. All that's under the banner of God is for us. The Trinity in all of its different roles is all working for your good, is all helping you in, in your mission, is all helping you to walk with God and, and, to, and to share that with other people. And no matter what happens to you in that journey, nothing can separate you from his love. He's for you. He's for you. He's for you. I love the song, The Blessing. You know that song that last few years became really popular? You know, it's all the blessing from the Old Testament. But it gets to, it builds, the music builds to this point, And then the, the, the singing just goes, he is for you. He is for you. He is for you. He is for you. Why does it have to be said so much? Because it's, the, it's what we need. We need to know it. We need it deep inside of ourselves. God, you really are for me. You really are for me. This is what Romans 8, 31 and 32 says. What then shall we say in response to the Holy Spirit helping us in our weakness? God the Father working for our good. Jesus interceding for us and nothing separating us from his love. What should we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's like, take all the opposition, take all the suffering, take all the things that could be in your way and cause you to, things to be difficult. It just doesn't measure up. It just doesn't compare. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God is for him. We can trust him to provide whatever we truly need in our life of service to him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's a great provider in that way? All right. I wore my England shirt this morning as foreshadowing. 
for what I'm about to tell you. I want to tell you a very unlikely story about provision for this church that happened this week. This is like out of left field unlikely. So this is our 100th year as a church. In May 1923, O.J. Lovick left Regina, came to Moose Jaw, and started meetings uh, in a theater close down to where the train, uh, the train station is. And uh, people came to Christ. Whole families came to Christ. People got healed. All sorts of miracles happened. And out of it was birthed the church. And he, was, he did this for a number of months. And, um, and then when he was uh, sort of done, then another guy came and in, the, in the next year, in 1924, and he led the church. And um, so this is our 100th year as a church, and we want to celebrate like it's 1923. <laughs> so we've asked people to give us, if you have historic pictures, pictures or histories and stories. Uh, maybe there's some items that would be great for us to see. Like, let's collect all these things that will help us to remember well and, and understand our, our incredible rich history and also to propel us forward into, into uh, the things that we can learn from our past that will help us to go forward in the next hundred years. So we want to celebrate our hundred years really well and we're going to uh, roll out more of the details of that yet to come. Anyhow, this week a woman walked into a from our community, walked into the office with a box that had a Bible inside. And the front of the Bible was inscribed with a name. And it's the name of someone I've heard quite a bit about, but someone I've never met. And the name was Reverend R. Dawson. He was the first real pastor of this church in 1924. So after O.J. Lovick had these revival meetings, then Dawson came in 1924. And he's the longest-serving pastor our church ever had. From 1924 to 1948, 24 years, he led this church. During this time, the church moved from location, in several different locations downtown. And... Uh, he was the pastor that was called to come out and preach at the Old Guard Schoolhouse Revival, where we saw lots and lots of people. Is anyone related to that in any way? You, you live, oh yeah, okay, so there's some of the relatives. to the. So people got saved in this schoolhouse back then, and Dawson was invited to come out after a woman in that area who'd been to the meetings with O.J. Lovick. She'd prayed for seven years, and then she invited Dawson to come out, and he led meetings in the schoolhouse, and it was just right down that road. Family after family after family came to the Lord. So here we are. We're, we're looking at this Bible with his name on the front. We're all a little bit shell-shocked to have someone who's not connected to us. I mean, someone from Musha, but they're not connected to us. Out of the blue, bring this into our office. So we called her back, this lady, and we asked for more details. So, again, this woman who brought us the Bible lives in Moose Jaw, and she she just moved. She's just moving to a different home. So she's sorting through the stuff in her house, and she has stuff that her son had left in her house. And um, this is stuff that's been in her house for about 20 years. And this Bible was one of the items. And so she saw the name of the Bible, Reverend R. Dawson, and she went online to research, who was this guy? And she found a great article that talked about him starting the Apostolic Temple. That was the name of our church 100 years ago. Here, and then how he'd gone on to Calgary. 
So that's the article that connected her to us. So, back up a little further. How did her son get the Bible? Well, her, her son went to school in Victoria a little over 20 years ago. He was living with his uncle, and one night they got talking about religion, and the uncle gave this Bible to this woman's son, and he said he didn't want it. So the son took it, but he never opened it or looked at it, although he, he hung on to it. So where did the uncle get the Bible from? The uncle got the Bible from his father. Now, the uncle and his father, they were estranged. They had some struggles in their relationship. And the uncle didn't want religion, but when he went to visit his dad, sort of like an end-of-life thing, his dad had given him that Bible. Well, where did the father get the Bible? Well, he grew up in Vulcan, Alberta, and then he lived in Calgary. And he came to faith and went to a church in Calgary. And it was at that time he received the Bible. And this is where the trail goes cold, because the person who gave it to him is still unknown. Although we do know that Reverend Dawson lived in Calgary around that time. So this Bible was preserved and made its way back here on our 100th year. Even though the recipient and the son, the, the father and the, and the son were estranged, and even though the, the uncle didn't want it, and even though his nephew never looked at it, and even though it sat in a box for 20 years in the woman's house, and even though the woman who brought it to us had no connection to us, on our 100th anniversary, we got Reverend Dawson's Bible. On top of all that, we found an envelope in the Bible with two letters in it. Written in 1939. To King George of England, who was visiting in our area at that time. He came to Moose Jaw on the royal train. Yes, the King George of the King's Speech, the father of Queen Elizabeth. So if you, the King's Speech, by the way, he would deliver three or four months after this letter was written. And the King's Speech was about announcing that. England was at war with Germany, the Second World War. So three or four months before the Second World War, the king and queen of England came to Moose Jaw area. There's a big barn out there. Actually, Megan Dautremont got married in that bar, barn. There's a big barn out there in the countryside where, they had, where the, the king came and, and had, they had a special uh, time there too. Anyhow, this is a letter written from Reverend Dawson to King George on behalf of not just our church, but all the churches in our, our denomination. To their majesties, King George and Queen Elizabeth, Royal Train, Winnipeg, Manitoba. That was the headquarters. I humbly, oh, this is great. Just, I love the language in this. I humbly beg on behalf of the above-named church organization, the Apostolic Church of Pentecost, the privilege of extending to your majesties a very cordial and hearty welcome to this part of the British Empire, and to assure you that we wish you a most enjoyable visit while in the North American continent, we desire to assure you of our prayer unto Almighty God for your safety and safe return to dear old England. And may the trip prove to be beneficial to your health and happiness. We further desire to reaffirm our unswerving loyalty to the British throne and the great British Empire, hence the shirt I'm wearing today. God save the King. Signed, Reverend Dawson. And 
the address, 23 High Street East, which was one of our church locations. And today, if you go there, it's Deja Vu Wings. <laughs> if you ever eat there, just think, ah, I knew there was something holy about this atmosphere. <laughs> it's a really blessed place. Lots of prayers of blessing were prayed in that place. Then they got a cordial response. The private secretary um, is commanded by the king to convey his majesty's sincere thanks to the Apostolic Church of Pentecost in Canada uh, for their message of loyal assurances from the royal train. That was the response. What do you think? I think God's got his hand in this. (laughs) Why? Why would God give us Dawson's Bible in our hundredth year. I've been scratching my head about it too. I think there's a couple things. You could say chalk it up to circumstance. But I think it's just part of that God is for us stuff. Sometimes I have blessings come into my life and I'm like, why? I try to figure it all out. I try to make, the, you know, make an equation for it or, or try to create a rationale for it. Why did this good blessing happen in my life? And I remember, and I've shared this before, a conversation I had with my first pastoral mentor, Lauren Tebbett. I was visiting him in Calgary and I was talking to him and I just said, like, this is going well and this is going well and this is going well and this is happening and this is happening. We've experienced this blessing and this and this and this. I had quite a list of things I was so excited about. And I said... I don't know why. I don't know why. I mean, I don't know what I did to deserve this. And he said, don't you get it after all these years? You didn't deserve it. It's just that God is that good. It's just he is for you. He is that good. Do we need Dawson's Bible? I just think God is that good. I think it's just a shot in the arm to say, you know what? Keep going. Keep serving. Keep dreaming about reaching more people. Keep reaching out in love. Keep at the mission. Be faithful in the leg of the journey that you've been given. Grasp the baton from the ones who handed it to you before. And run well in your leg of the journey so you can solidly place it in the hands of others who will run after you. God wants to bless the people in this world more than we could even imagine. And he makes his people, those who've already turned to him, the conduits of that blessing, We're the ones who carry the message of reconciliation that the world needs to hear. They need to hear our explanation of who God is and what he's done and why it's such good news. But he makes us also the demonstration of the truth and the goodness of that. The people who, because God is for them, are free from some of the shackles that they naturally would be held back by. And they love more. And their generosity abounds. And they care for those who others have given up on. 
And there's evidence that this is not just them, that God is at work in their lives. Would you stand with me? Here's the prayer I want you to pray. Pray. Here's the prayer I want you to pray. God, give me a chance to meet a need. Give me a chance to meet needs. Give me a chance to meet needs in such a way that it demonstrates the truth of the gospel. That it demonstrates the reality of who Jesus is for me And it demonstrates that he's doing a work in me so that I have become more for others than I would in my natural personality or I would in my natural inclinations. I would because of the upbringing of my family or because of my ethnic background or because of the school I went to. Let there be something there that is only can be explained by God. Help me demonstrate the truth of the gospel. The God who is so generous to give us his one and only son I am trusting him to give me all things. And so I've been released to be generous in the world. To give him my time. To give him my help. To give him my money. To give and to give and to give. Lord, help us demonstrate the truth. Help us demonstrate that the truth that we're going to declare in our relationships. Lord, I just come before you today. I thank you for our church. I thank you that I feel this week you just gave us an extra blessing, an extra sort of encouragement by getting this Bible. And Lord, I just ask, I ask for all of us, help us, give us eyes to see the needs and give us, give us um, just a sense, a stronger and stronger sense. We are your ambassadors. We're your representation. You started with blessing. You spent time. You met needs. You declared the kingdom had come near. Lord, help us to just imitate you in what we see that you've already done and help us demonstrate what's yet to come, your kingdom here on earth. Yeah, we praise you. We honor you. We couldn't have a better leader couldn't have a better provider. You're incredible. Take us on the adventure, Lord, into the next steps of growing and trusting you and walking by faith. We ask that in your name.